Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't want to make a podcast where they show up, they sit down, they jack off, and they get up and they get out before the podcast ends. It is my dream, it is my goal, it is my idea to make a podcast where the content just sucks them in. And when they spurt out that joy juice, they've got to sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the conversation ends ends. Oh my god, is Burt Reynolds and or Jack Nicholson in the room? <laughs> I can't tell. I haven't, I, I've never attempted a Burt Reynolds impression before, so I'm sorry if it's not quite <laughs> not up to there. my other impressions. <laughs> so, like any kid that was getting into films, P.T. Anderson was someone that you had to like. Oh, sure. High school, you know. And he's one of those people that we don't usually mention when we talk about that stage of our film love and career because his movies were good and they remain good as opposed to other filmmakers. But also, he's somebody who I think has ascended to another level. Mm -hmm. Like, those early movies, uh, which I like, are in that kind of uh, showy... You know, look at me, look at look at me, look at me. High school kind of movie making, better than you know a lot of them. But, but yeah. he's evolved, right? Yeah, and it's hard to even think of him. I think he's clearly become the best of that Sundance. Uh, you know, the Sundance kids, <laughs> yep, the rebels that's on right. the back lot. <laughs> You know, with apologies to Mr. Tarantino, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is the best of them now. I, I don't think there's any yeah. doubt in that as far yeah. as like being talked about critically. He, he's not on that level that Tarantino is in pop culture, I feel, yeah. but his films will last the test of time. And he's the one who feels the most exciting to watch right now because each new movie like feels like an event and it feels like it keeps going further and further into this evolution. He's not repeating himself. He's not. He's kind of finding his style and refining and sometimes going in a little bit yeah. of a different direction, not going backwards, but always moving forward. Exactly. Uh, so Paul Thomas Anderson was a kid that grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Famously, his father was an announcer for ABC, and he was also a, a horror host, Goulardi, mm. <laughs> on TV. So... P.T. Anderson was in this circle of kind of showbiz. Like, P.T. Anderson wasn't given any opportunities right off the bat. Like, if you just follow his career trajectory, loved films, made it with his friends, shot a short film himself. It gained the attention of Sundance, where he got to go to the Sundance Labs, which is you develop a scene with other filmmakers and get to work with famous actors. And from that point, he was able to sell one of his scripts, Sydney to a fly-by-night like VHS distributor who mostly did television, as P.T. Anderson said, shitty Baywatch-style TV series. I watched it for the very first time this morning. And this film, Sydney, was titled Hard Eight, and that's the way it went out, because there was a lot of distribution difficulties. Mm. Uh, P.T. Anderson, when he made the film, was only 25, and so he wrote the script, shot it, and then edited in three weeks and for a year fought with the distributor about what it was supposed to be. They expected a kind of shoot 'em up maybe more Pulp fiction It's got thing. a bit of a post-Tarantino um, odor coming off it, for sure. And what it ends up being is just a three to four person character mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. Not much is going on in the sense of events, but like it's all about these decisions that everybody is making. So what did you think if you saw it for the first time? I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think he's it's he's come a long way since then. But a lot of what I like about Paul Thomas Anderson is present in the first movie. You know, he got this reputation because of Boogie Nights and Magnolia as being heir to Robert Altman with these vast tapestries full of so many different characters, you know, encompassing big topics. 
you know, so many of his movies, no matter how many characters there are, are kind of these collections of scenes that are little duets mm-hmm. between between two characters. And that's present in Part Eight. Yeah, it's, it's these it's these very powerful, inter, very actorly little interactions, and also present in the first movie that I think is still present throughout his career is he's very attuned to the the sensual qualities of film. He loves color. He loves sound. He loves the way actors' faces looks. He loves actors' faces. Like you, you are never more conscious of like. This movie, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is in it, and I don't think I've ever been as conscious about, you know, what Gwyneth Paltrow looks like Mm -hmm. until I've, um, I hate to say flaws or the imperfections, but whatever the things in her face are that make her a human being, or the pockmarks in John C. Riley's face, or the big bags under Philip Baker Hall's eyes. How good is Philip Baker Hall in this movie? Unbelievable. He is amazing. Now, Philip Baker Hall... Like, you know what he's going to sound like. He's a presence, which I feel is one of the reasons that he was always kind of sidelined to supporting roles. Mm -hmm. But he is so charismatic and direct in the way that he speaks and he acts that Paul Thomas Anderson, who said that he wrote the film for him, knows exactly how to utilize him as a weapon in the picture. There's nothing fussy about the performance. It's very stripped down, um, a very confident piece of acting. And also, in addition to loving the way that actors look, Paul Thomas Anderson loves the sound of actors' voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure why I'm more conscious of this in his films than I am in others, but like in uh, Boogie Nights, when, for example, Burt Reynolds delivers that monologue, it's the movie where I'm most conscious of the beautiful timber of Burt Reynolds' voice. People tend to say that like Tarantino writes amazing dialogue, mm-hmm. but the major complaint of Tarantino is that everybody kind of sounds the same. Yeah. And I wouldn't put that on Paul Thomas Anderson's characters, but they do talk in a stylized way in the sense that they like tend to repeat information or they go back on what they're talking about to kind of underline it and just shoot it toward the person that they're talking to. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, it's often like two people talking to each other and bouncing back and forth to get to the end scene. Paul Thomas Anderson said that when he would get stuck writing, he would think, okay, if I put these people in a coffee shop and that was the starting scene, where would the conversation go? And that is literally in Sydney how the film begins. Yeah, and like, and like a Tarantino movie, so many or a Kevin Smith movie, uh, <laughs> so many of their dialogues sound, you know, I, I love Tarantino's dialogue mm-hmm. a lot of the time, but it's it sounds kind of like blog posts from yeah. Tarantino, like when, when David Carradine talks about Superman. This could be like Tarantino's stand-up act that he's put into somebody's mouth. Anyway, not the case with PTA. No, because his stuff is so specific and he can write all these characters out of their own voice and there's a real empathy toward all these people. Mm-hmm. Like, he loves mm-hmm. every actor that appears on screen, and by extension, he loves every character. And Heart 8 slash Sydney is a movie that I remember when I saw it after seeing Boogie Nights and Magnolia, I was disappointed because it didn't have those kind of stylistic flourishes that those movies have, but you can definitely see them just bubbling under the well, surface. Well, it's, it's a movie that definitely announces itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are so many of the shots, even though, even though it doesn't have anything like the camera going into the pool or anything as flashy as that all the shots are still these like perfectly composed one perfect shots in you know cinemascope framing and even at that time if you hear him talk about the film his cinephilia is just 
you know, pouring out of every orifice of him. He's like, <laughs> oh, you know that opening scene where uh, John C. Riley talks about the cigarettes and it cuts away? That was definitely my inspiration, like in Francois Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player, where the guy talks about, if I'm lying, my, 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 may my mother be stricken down, and then it cuts to his mother be stricken down. That's the stuff that I love in movies. Wait, every orifice? Every orifice. Oh, man. Every hole, just shooting right out Good of it. God. He couldn't control himself. This is a good point to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson as a arrogant uh, director genius, because that's the way he was kind of qualified over those first few movies. Because while Sydney was not a hit, uh, it was a film that he was famous for really fighting for mm -hmm. and in like an angry way, as documented in Peter Biskin's Down and Dirty Pictures, mm -hmm. where every step of the way the studio was trying to like tear it away from him. And he ended up taking the money that he made from uh, selling Boogie Nights to finish it so he could release it himself, which ended up as far as I could discover smuggling um, a copy to show at Sundance. Huh. And it was Boogie Nights, though, the script and then which led to him directing it, that kind of cemented him as a young genius. Boogie Nights, I think just in terms of a movie I can watch over and over again, one of my favorite movies. I'm not even saying it's his best movie mm -hmm. or, or or even one of his best movies, but it is. What would you change about Boogie Nights though? You like know, I watched it yesterday yeah. and I was like, this movie is so good. It fe like it feels perfect in some way and, and it gets better every time I see it because the first time I saw it when I was in high school, I loved it of course, mm -hmm. but I was very conscious of, oh, it's Goodfellas and now Nashville, like the the influences weighed very heavily on it to me, and now I they don't weigh so much for me anymore. It seems to for me, or or, I mean the influences are still there, but they seem to matter less. Yeah, I think that while it's easy to go, oh, he's just aping Scorsese, which he is in like the way that he moves the camera, yeah. his love with the long takes, which he said right before he made Boogie Nights, he saw I Am Cuba. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to like top those sequences. Yeah. There are worse people to ape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But like I said before, he's so in love with all of these performers and all of these characters that they're constantly endearing like just look at somebody like marky mark who in the film gives an amazing performance because pt anderson understands inherently who marky mark is and what character he could play well so the last time i saw the movie just a few weeks ago at the royal again the movie is just the, this series of little duets where and this is why i think it's different than something like goodfellas all of these scenes there are so many scenes that you could theoretically cut out of the movie that mm -hmm. are little self-contained moments between two people but they're there because he loves the characters and he loves the actors and these scenes are these self-contained little showcases for these actors and these characters interacting it's a story that he had actually done back when he was like 16 he did a mockumentary the dirk diggler story and you can feel that love for the era that he's adapting i mean it's not a subtle film like the fact that it jumps from the 70s to the 80s with someone committing suicide mm -hmm. is very in your face and that's again there was the camera moves those long takes and the musical choices which are on the nose but still great actually you know what so i, I thinking about it more just now I think what separates it from something like Goodfellas, it is a mix of the virtuosic and the tossed off. Mm -hmm. So like Goodfellas is pure virtuosic, but this is a movie that has those virtuosic moments, but it's full of these like little goofy interactions. Yeah, the Robert Altman touch. Yes, yeah, st yeah, stuff that stuff that seems like it was improvised, like mm -hmm. that that bit of Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley like by the pool saying how much do you bench. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> That's amazing. Right? And uh, Pete Anderson talked about how he wouldn't try to direct everybody too much making this mm-hmm. film because he casted them based on the characters that they were going to play. Mm-hmm. Like, Marky Mark in this film is a dumb guy, but he's so earnest and kind of sympathetic that yeah. like you want to like him even when he goes on the wrong path as the movie goes along it's it's interesting like how well he how well he plays it and how well the character is written because it like is a truly shallow character yeah because there's nothing there other than i want to be a star based on the gift that god gave me yeah uh, but then like the moments when he tries the, you know the character tries to make it look like there's something more there are inadvertently revealing of how little is there. Like, Wait, like still... when he's in the do- the documentary, he's going, I want to say something to all my haters. You <laughs> yeah. know? Or, uh, you know, I block my own scenes. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds goes, oh no, uh, he does it. Which supposedly was actually in a John Holmes it, it, documentary. It, it, it is. You can see the, you can find the clip online. There, it, it, that whole section of the movie was based on this movie called Exhausted John Holmes, The Real Story. Which... The Criterion Laser Disc. Yeah, has it on it. Has that documentary on it with Paul Thomas Anderson doing commentary. It was the director, yeah, <laughs> and it was never included on any of the Blu-rays or the DVDs. So we've been dodging around it, but let's talk about Burt Reynolds, who supposedly had a terrible time making this movie. Or, I mean, he talks about that retroactively. Paul Thomas Anderson states that Burt Reynolds was nervous around the cast and crew because of his image and working with these young people. He was a huge star. Yeah. He was a Clint Eastwood level star, for God's sake. And at this point, and while making the movie, they had 57 days of shooting, and there were maybe three days that were really rough. Uh, Supposedly at one point, even though Anderson denies this, Burt Reynolds punched him in the stomach. (laughs) Uh, And it mostly came out of the fact that Mark Wahlberg and Burt Reynolds were fighting. Because Mark Wahlberg, a bit of a jerk. Yeah, well, um, I I heard uh, a clip from a podcast recently in which Burt Reynolds was interviewed, where he said he was just very uncomfortable with the subject matter and with some of the language. And you would so, never know watching the film. Yeah, I mean, he delivers it very well. Um, I don't know. I, what do you even say about Burt Reynolds in the movie? He's got, like, his performance is this excellent mix of, you know, he's got real gravitas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got real real warmth and strength, and yet he is also just a very tacky figure. Yeah. Much well, like Mr. Burt Reynolds himself in He real never life. overplays the emotion that there's never a scene, except for the one where it's the on-the-prowl uh, recreation, yeah, yeah. that he like kind of like breaks down or anything, because everybody else gets that moment. And the one where that could happen, where Mark Wahlberg comes in to apologize to him, it's actually played from the shoulder of Burt Reynolds. You don't see his face yeah. as Mark Wahlberg is apologizing. But like, I don't know if you've ever seen footage of like Gerard Damiano, the the pornographer, like he's he's the kind of guy, much like Burt Reynolds, like you can imagine in the context of this universe carries a lot of weight, Mm -hmm. has a lot of dignity. And yet seen from another angle looks like objectively ridiculous. Yeah. And and like and that's what Burt Reynolds has. He there's this kind of tacky (laughs) quality to him. And yet in in the universe of of the that these characters are in, he's the godfather. Yeah. I mean like he's an interesting character in the sense that like there's a scene where they find a girl OD'd and he's Mm -hmm. just kind of standing there it's taken care of. But then a later scene where it's revealed that one of his good friends is a pedophile. Right. And the way he reacts to that Uh is just so kind of perfect yeah like emotion kind of cracking through that cool burt reynolds shell Mm. that uh it's a shame that he doesn't like the movie even though he was nominated for best supporting actor losing to mr robin williams (laughs) really for goodwill hunting i was gonna say hopefully patch adams yeah patch (laughs) yeah although i'm sure you know that that 
uh, Robin Williams was hoping for Oscar number two for that one. How do you think it would have been <laughs> if Jack Nicholson, who had played the Burt Reynolds role, which at one point was talked about? Um, I don't think it, I, I don't know if it would have been as good. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Nicholson's a little bit, Jack, Jack, Ren, Jack Nicholson has a kind of dirty quality to mm-hmm. him, you know, a kind of leering quality, which the Burt Reynolds character seems kind of uninterested in sex except sort of clinically and professionally mm-hmm. you know? yeah he wants to make movies that's his goal yeah he's not he's not as leering as some I, I mean maybe he is a bit leering in some some cases but not to the extent Jack Nicholson would be and um I'm sure you've heard that Warren Beatty was offered the role. Why? Well, oh no, I didn't read that while I was doing research. Who, who I think could have worked. Yeah, I th- absolutely know? think so. But I would, you know, Burt Reynolds' voice. Yeah, and just the way he looks. Right, he looks like you mentioned, kind of plasticky, and like yeah. the way his beard is trimmed perfectly. He looks like a movie star kind of gone to see. <laughs> Which he was. Yes. <laughs> we would be remiss not to mention the performances of like Julianne Moore and Heather Graham in the film. Good, good, good. Yeah, they're all good. But this is a... Philip exa- Seymour Hoffman for, for gosh sake. But this is an example of like the role of women in Paul Thomas Anderson's film that it's mostly about men bonding and women are in positions that like they can be smart, they can be in power, but they're usually living in the shadows of men. And so many of his movies are about, you know, father-son mm-hmm. figures or father-son dynamics. Yeah, like take The Master, for example, where Amy Adams is like a very um, powerful figure in the context mm-hmm. of the story, but she's still under the story of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. They all take place in such patriarchal contexts. Yeah. yeah. So then you have After Boogie Nights was a massive success. Like, I don't know what it did at the box office. I assume a, okay. I'm sure a big success d'estime. Mm-hmm. That uh, P.T. Anderson supposedly talked about how, oh, his next movie is going to be a little picture. Uh, Julianne Moore is going to be in it. It's going to be in the San Fernando Valley over one day. It's going to be really easy. And what it ended up was this giant, big, epic, indulgent, bloated, egocentric film called Magnolia. Never heard of it. No? Okay, well, I'll just talk about it by myself then. This was a movie that I remember renting the two VHS tapes and being like, (laughs) oh my god, is that long? (laughs) Did you like it? Because the, I did. I found it a little much in high school. You know who else agreed with me? Uh, Mr. Kevin Smith, who I believe famous. Would you you have the quote that he said about the movie? I do because I remembered in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back that he takes weird pot shots at Magnolia when Jay and Silent Bob beat up Magnolia fan like sixty nine or something like that. His exact quote was. They sent me an Academy screener DVD of Magnolia this week. I'll never watch it again, but I will keep it. I'll keep it right on my desk as a constant reminder that a bloated sense of self-importance is the most unattractive quality in a person or their work. Well, I hope that copy is still on his desk taunting him. I'm sure it got knocked over like a week before he shot Yoga Hosers (laughs) or Jan Silent Bob Strike Back or Clerks 2. Who knows? It's not there anymore. But like, I mean, Magnolia, when it came out, there's no doubt that it is overlong and like there's too much movie in the movie Mm -hmm. and he's pushing that Robert Altman meets Scorsese style a little bit further than it should be pushed. Mm -hmm. And yet? I like it. Yeah. I like, there's so much good stuff in it because it is, uh, you know, a showcase for all these actors, including Tom Cruise's best performance. Yeah. Offered to Burt Reynolds. Really? Who famously turned it down. And I think Burt Reynolds, as much as I like Tom Cruise in the movie, could you imagine Burt Reynolds saying those lines? I cannot imagine. Uh, it would have been great. Well, that final Tom Cruise uh, monologue, I was reading uh, 
the book by Amy Nicholson on Tom Cruise and all that stuff that Tom Cruise says in that scene where he's like, you cocksucker, you like that, didn't you, cocksucker, is all Tom Cruise collaborating with P.T. Anderson oh, nice. to make it more hard-edged. Oh, that's the, that's the side of Tom Cruise we don't see anymore now that, now that he's distanced himself from suppressive people. <laughs> that's true. And Magnolia was a film that it was a third time he was nominated for an Oscar, didn't win, and supposedly according to his circle of people, he went, all right, I just want to make entertaining films now because they're not going to give me that golden statue. But P.T. Anderson is the first one to admit that Magnolia got away from him, that he should have gone back and like edited like a half an hour, 45 minutes out of it. So Punch Drunk Love seems like a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's still... Disappointing young Justin DeClue. Because you wanted a fun Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> no, because yeah. I wanted more of the energy of Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And what we got was a little bit of that, but more controlled, more in the mold of Heart 8. It, and much more of the kind of mood piece that mm-hmm. you develop later. Uh, and this is, again, a movie where his attention to kind of like the sensual details of film starts to really take over. You know, the the colors of like... Adam Sandler's costumes, just the the use of music. Like yeah. they got an instrument that's never used to do the soundtrack or like the way that the sound at one point, there's a jump scare where he goes to pick up the musical instrument that he finds on the street and a truck zooms by and it's like deafening in a movie theater. You know, whenever I read an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson, he's, he's obviously really smart, mm-hmm. um, but I think he is an artist more than he is an intellectual. Mm. Like, I don't mean that as a knock at all because he's very smart and he's, and he knows what he's doing. But I think he's somebody who like a lot of great artists works by instinct somewhat. Mm-hmm. His movies are not at all didactic. Um, even though they have things that they're saying, they, they leave, they leave a lot of space for you to have your own interpretation. You know, like there's no one way to feel about his movies and his characters the way there is for, for example, a lot of the movies nominated for best picture this year. Mm -hmm. And you sense that in his use of music or color costumes, he's sort of going by instinct to create some sort of effect that he's not even quite sure what it is, except that it just sort of feels right. Yeah, Boogie Nights is fairly didactic in the way that it's presented, in the sense that it's very, like, in your face. Mm-hmm. Even though it's dealing with a complex subject, and, like, it is saying, like, oh, no, these are good people. Like, they're not bad people. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think that Punch Drunk Love is the first film where there is that breathing room in what's happening. And when The Master came out... I remember there was so much hype around the master being this expose of Scientology. That's mm-hmm. what everyone was talking about when it came out. And even though it was immediately very acclaimed, I think a lot of people were taken aback that it wasn't quite the Scientology expose they thought it was going to be. Because it gives you space to think about Scientology and Scientology's, you know, what Scientology represented in post-war America in this sort of like crisis of masculinity context. I think that one of the things that's unfortunately happened to Paul Thomas Anderson in over the last few movies is that the audience has begun to treat him as a serious filmmaker in the sense that like the master Paul Thomas Anderson was talking recently on a podcast thinks it's a hilarious movie and that he felt that maybe he didn't toe the line to let audiences know it's okay to laugh in his own words that you know, what Philip Seymour Hoffman is saying is so ridiculous, mm-hmm. and the idea that he's saying it so seriously to him makes him laugh. But to an audience, sometimes they're like, oh, wait, what am I supposed to read in this? Yeah. Well, the, the, the tone of the movie is very heavy, mm-hmm. you know. 
Yeah. And it's the same with Phantom Thread, really. I mean, Phantom Thread's very funny at times. but Yeah, times... even though that, like, in The Master, Joaquin Phoenix is giving a very uh, stylized performance, sure. like, in the way that, like, he runs or mm. even the way that he kind of leans over and looks at mm. somebody. While serious, Paul Thomas Anderson just wishes that he could put a thing at the beginning of the movie that says, like, it's okay to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's something else that gives his movies that peculiar effect. The tone is so difficult to pin down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's another reason why I think he's grown as an artist he gives you space to determine exactly how funny or how difficult you want to find his movies you know there's no one way to read them and there's no one reaction to have to them i'm not even sure he quite knows what what he's saying sometimes with some of his movies i mean sometimes he's just trying to show off and while you could say that he got rid of that after he got boogie nights and magnolia out of his system it just evolved into different forms like in there will be blood you get like a long opening sequence that has no dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like, that's showing off. Or in The Master, you know what? I'm gonna shoot some scenes in 70 millimeter. Like... Did you see it in 70 millimeter? I did at the Varsity. Yeah, so that was... I did too, and it made my eyes water, and it gave me a headache. The images were so intense. Well, people <laughs> complained at the time that, why would you shoot in 70mm if you're shooting essentially a chamber drama? But what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing is that, in his choice of a lot of low angles, over the last few films he does this a lot, of the actors and their big faces as they're talking, and you see every pore yeah. and every little movement, it's almost overwhelming yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, and I remember in The Master, there's that one scene when Phoenix is in the department store, when the colors were so intense, there was just so much detail in the <laughs> department store, and it was, it was almost too much for me. And know? then it breaks out in a fight in a yeah. long take, yeah. but it's just a slow long take in the yeah. way that it plays out. Um, were you a fan of Inherent Vice? When it came out? It's definitely, I think, my least favorite of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, although I should see Magnolia again. Um, I think it's it, it was a movie that as I was watching it, I thought perhaps now that I've seen it once, uh, the mood is going to work for me better. Because I think it's a movie where, you know, it dumps so much information on you in that first five minutes. And then it's very hard to follow after that. And I think what it's supposed to be is a movie where you kind of go from scene to scene and sort of float along almost in a haze. Yeah, it's supposed to recreate the feeling of being high, essentially. Yeah, and yet I I didn't find it particularly compelling and I didn't find it particularly funny. I'm a huge fan of the idea of Thomas Pynchon, even though most of his novels, to me, are impenetrable. <laughs> as the classic uh, joke goes, like, oh, we're reading Gravity Rainbow. Sorry, sorry, rereading Gravity Rainbow. <laughs> and Inherent Vice, while it's one of his more accessible novels, it is a novel that, like, you'll read it and halfway through a page you'll go, wait, 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 what, what's going on? Did I miss something and have to go back? And at the time I thought, oh, maybe Anderson is going to go back to his like high energy style because it is a very zany kind of crime thing. Mm-hmm. But instead he went into something that makes complete sense, which is someone that's just out of it and mm-hmm. doesn't really know what's going on and it is kind of befuddled. I was also taken aback somewhat by the tone of it, as mm-hmm. I sometimes am with Anderson, because it is this mix of he has such high-toned influences. You know, this new one, Phantom Thread, like, Oh Fools movies, mm-hmm. or... Um, Hitchcock hit, hit, with or Rebecca. Rebecca, or stuff like that. And yet he also loves Adam Sandler movies. He and, loved Adam Sandler. And, you know, Inherent Vice is probably inspired a bit by Cheech and Chong, or <laughs> yeah. know, Stoner comedy. People will be like, oh, it's a long goodbye, right? And he'll be like, no, 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 it's the third Cheech and Chong film. Uh, Cheech and Chong are detectives, or so, something so like that. So it really is this strange mix of it. Like, some of the humor in the movie is so kind of goofy and childish, mm-hmm. and yet it's done in this very high art 
tone that I didn't see it under the best of circumstances though. <laughs> I saw it on Boxing Day at the uh, Times Square AMC oh, man. with an audience that was mostly um, people who were shut out of Into the Woods and the Angelina Jolie movie about the uh, the the wounded athlete or whatever that one un- Unbroken. Oh wow, called. yeah. Those were both sold out, so most of the audience was from that, and I would say half the audience walked out. It was not a crowd pleaser. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't because it's something that is essentially a mood piece that you just have to kind of get into. It definitely didn't get its tender hooks in me at the time. No, and I think that an interesting way that you could approach Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson are from his influences, which while it's easy to go Scorsese and Altman, it's also important to talk about Jonathan Demi, which he mm-hmm. uh, says is one of his big kind of, you know, touchstones for his work. Uh, and one of the commentaries he does, I think it's for Boogie Nights, he talks about how the way that Jonathan Demi uses close-ups, for mm-hmm. example, like in Something Wild, the gun going into the drain pipe, is something that he's recreated himself a lot, specifically in Heart 8. And Something Wild, I think, is an instructive comparison because it's a movie of really wild tonal mm-hmm. shifts, and yet it all seems to make sense in the context. Or you could compare him to someone like Mike Nichols, who had the same style early in his career. Mm-hmm. Like, The Graduate is all about, look at me, I'm directing. And the same thing with Catch-22. But as those movies went on, Mike Nichols realized, oh, I don't have to do super long takes. I don't have to do, like, subversive visual gags in the frame. I can just let things play. Yeah. And then he made Wolf. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> A return to form of The Graduate. <laughs> so I'm really excited to see where P.T. Anderson's career goes from here. I heard him talking recently in an interview that the next project he wants to tackle is another one of his 600-page scripts. Mm. So who knows what that will be like. But, uh, you know, it'd be nice if he would do a remake of Midnight Run or something like that. I'm glad Megan Ellison is writing him checks. Yep. <laughs> I mean, thank God. Imagine if she wasn't. Film culture would be much poorer. Yeah, he would not be making movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he would for Amazon or something like yeah. that. So you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And on this week's Patreon, we're talking about the year 1998. Size does matter. (laughs) If you know what that tagline is, you got to check this one out. (laughs) Or if you're a real uh, fan of animated films starring insects. Nope, it's not the one you're thinking of. (laughs) So $5 a month, check us out. Patreon, Important Cinema Club. You get a new episode every week. It's the one they're thinking of. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, knowing you and me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's that one. Yeah. So next week, we're going to be talking about a famed comedian who was famous for his look, and that's Harold Lloyd. What? No, not Charlie Chaplin? Who is this Harold Lloyd-like figure? I didn't see him on TV. How am I supposed to know who he is? Harold Lloyd, the famed third genius. You know him as the guy hanging from the clock. Mm -hmm. Jackie Chan. And he's got, yeah, Jackie Chan. And he's got glasses. That was his defining characteristic. If you're currently living in Toronto, the Lightbox having a retrospective of his work, all in 35mm. We'll be talking about his feature films mostly, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we should watch. I I got three that I think we should watch. Okay. Uh, The Kid Brother. Mm-hmm. Safety last, speedy. Those are the three we're going to check out, and I'm really excited to talk about him. And you may not have seen too many of his films, because unlike the other comedians, he was very tight about how his films were released, mm-hmm. which is a reason that they never really played on television. But he made way more money than all the other comedians. Because he was more prolific. Exactly. And he invested wisely. <laughs> In and, Microsoft. And uh, la- later in life, he uh, became a nude photographer. He did? <laughs> Haven't you seen at BMV, there's that book of Harold Lloyd's Hollywood nudes of like his 3D pictures? Oh, of, I like... assume it was just Hollywood nudes of Harold Lloyd. Oh, I, I wish. <laughs> so until then, my name is Dustin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
So, Will, you just arrived here right from the flight that landed from New York. It's currently 11.30 p.m. on a weekday. The things I do for the fans. <laughs> and why were you in New York? I wanted to attend an event at the Anthology Film Archives. It was a six-film Hong Kong action movie marathon, mm-hmm. movies from the 80s and 90s on 35mm, programmed by Grady Hendrix. Yeah, probably one of the most interesting programmers and essayists on kind of Hong Kong and Asian cinema. He uh, used to write an article for Film Comment called Keiju Shakedown, mm-hmm. which is great, and you should check those archives, because the last time he wrote a column for a website, and the website shut down and he lost all of them. So, oh. check those out. But... How was the experience, Will? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, you know that I'm not the the perfect marathon subject. Yeah. So I got to say, after six movies, mm-hmm. I was feeling it a bit. Mm. And especially six... Like, Hong Kong high, action movies. High fucking energy movies. That said, I mean, it was an incredible marathon. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see six... Six Hong Kong movies from the late 80s and 90s is to kind of be immersed in this world. Mm-hmm. Like, and these are deep cut movies. Most yeah. most of them are not that well known. They, I knew them all. They're known to you. But... I was a little bit disappointed. I personally was not allowed to attend because my student loan rate just went up. <laughs> so while the elite went to Hong Kong on their private plane. That's right. <laughs> I stayed home with, thankfully, friends that would do a In the Living Room Hong Kong Movie Marathon. Oh, nice. Which we did at the... Uh, we also watched six films different than you. But these movies, you know, they're all kind of down and dirty productions. A lot of them were shot sort of guerrilla style in the streets of Hong Kong. There was this amazing film that I know you've seen, uh, Kirk Wong's Organized Crime and Triad Bureau, which has this amazing like sh- shootout in the streets of Hong Kong that they apparently filmed without permits. That's crazy. And, you know, in these films, you can see like Hong Kong is a living organism in these films. Uh, and you, you get the sense that it was this this film community that was just churning these movies out so quickly and with such energy and such imagination. And there was just something in the air. Like, even the the lesser films that we saw, like there was this one called um, Kickboxer's Tears with, yeah, Mo- with Moon Lee. Yeah, like a girls with guns film, as uh, it's the sub-subcategory. Which is like a pretty kind of cruddy movie for the most part, but the action scenes are mind-blowing. <laughs> yep. And it's just like, or, you know, Fong Sayuk, the the most famous movie that I saw uh, with Jet Li, has this unbelievable scene that Corey Yoon choreographed with Jet Li and Michelle Reese fighting on top of a bunch of people's heads. That, those are the scenes that, like, when people talk about a certain movie that's about a driver whose first name is Baby, and they say, like, oh, this action, like, reinvents what, you know, cinema can do. <laughs> you want to point them, like, no, well, look what they were doing in the early 90s. And they were churning it out. Like, a movie like Fong sai was probably made in three months. Yeah, and when Fong sai came up, it was such a big hit that the sequel came out months later because they wanted mm-hmm. to rush it out to just follow those coattails. So it felt like just being immersed in this this world and the fact that they were six or, you know, mostly unheralded movies. Most of the movies we saw were box office failures. So it felt like just a random sampling of whatever was going on and it was just this incredible burst of energy and creativity. If you want... Maybe more in the Hong Kong film industry. What can I say? (laughs) If you want uh, to learn a little bit more about that, I think probably the best resource for just a snapshot of it is, we've mentioned this before, David Bordwell's Planet Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. because he was able to get on the ground floor and talk about, like, the movies would have a preview screening at midnight every Mm -hmm. week, and depending on how that would do, they would either stay a week 
week or three weeks and the stars would actually go to those midnight screenings and meet the fans afterwards. Like, that's crazy. That's a film industry that doesn't exist anymore. Especially when you consider that Hong Kong didn't have that big a population mm -hmm. for these movies and yeah. they made so many of them. And also the fact that these movies are so, um, so violent and have such... Uh, Technical complexity. And, 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 but also like so many of them are so tasteless. Mm-hmm. That brings up a good example because in the marathon that I did, I actually tried to pick because of the audience I was with. I couldn't play like six crazy movies. Mm -hmm. uh, we played like Vengeance, which was a Shaw Brothers film that stars David Chang, which was a Chang Chase remake of Point Blank, the Lee mm -hmm. Marvin film. Uh, we did Gen Y Cops, uh, early 2000s film. That... Starring a Paul Rudd. Exactly. That's <laughs> the only reason I played it was... Uh... <laughs> with Frosted Tips, yeah. who does Kung Fu in the film. But most importantly, a film that, while we were watching it, my friend Matthew, co-host of the Loose Cannons podcast, went, why did you pick this one? I went, oh, well, it's because I've never seen it, because it's never really been something that was appealing. But I have to see it, because it's a milestone of the, in of the industry. And that was Herman Yao's The Untold Story. I kind of like it. Yeah. Well, it's a crazy movie that I've never seen it because like most Cat 3 films, which we talked about on a Patreon episode, it is filled with like gore that it just wants you to get that Mondo shock out of it. There's a scene where Anthony Wong literally butchers the whole family with uh, a knife. Uh, you could say family, but more specifically, five kids. <laughs> yes. Okay. I forgot that detail. It's been a few years since I've seen it. But Herman Yao, who directed this film, gives it like a very low-key Sam Raimi-like energy. At one point, the camera does a full 360 mm. toward a phone ringing. Yeah. And it's that level of... You know, it's not in that 70s grindhouse like, oh my god, am I seeing a real documentary? It's just goofy enough to be entertaining. And I think that separates it from, you know, something that would be too gross, like to see. Well, and, the, yeah, the, the tastelessness coupled with the technical complexity and the, and the you know, death-defying stunts of these movies just shows it was like, it was, it was like an industry with such electricity and such almost like reckless disregard. It, it was just hurtling and hurtling and hurtling creating these films. And it almost feels like they were on a factory line that we made this movie, we made this movie, we made this movie. No one's gonna watch these ever yeah. again. So it doesn't really yeah. matter that Anthony Wong has a brutal scene where he takes chopsticks and he puts them where they should not go in the victim that he's attacking. Is that the film where he fucks a piece of meat or is that Ebola syndrome? I think that's probably okay. Ebola syndrome. The more fun one of the two, but the one that also features more sexual assault. I think it's more problematic for sure. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, the day after the marathon, by the way, I went to the MoMA and I saw the new restoration of Police Story with Jackie Chan. Gotta say, pretty good. Holds up? Shit. You know, so I've I've said before how these action scenes are so packed with stuff in them that you almost take it for granted. There's a bit in that in that fight, you know, in the parking lot with the two cars, mm -hmm. when Jackie like rolls back into a car and then he propels his body backwards out of the window. Yes, and it's so fast, it's like it's yeah, it's a second. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> How did he do it? The movie should just end on that scene and then just keep playing it. And then you're like, all right, guys, you've had enough, right? And you know, it was great to see. It. I've seen it a few times with an audience and it's always great in the big stunt at the end when he when he slides down the pole with all the lights exploding. 
when they play the shot three times from three different angles. And, but it's not even... I, and by the third one, everyone applauds. You know, but that stunt, <laughs> I know it hurt Jackie Chan a lot because he cut his hand sliding down. Yeah. Not that impressive when you see it until he lands at the bottom because he goes crashing through. Well, I don't know. I mean, when you see all those lights exploding <laughs> around true. him and all the all the shards of glass... Uh, and he lands and gets up. There's, a, there's an incredible bit in the blooper reel at the end when, you know, Jackie, like another stunt... Really, honestly, even more impressive where he where he jumps through glass, and then he falls over a railing and lands on his back, <sighs> and then and then you see the stunt, and then it cuts to Jackie being uh, carried away on a stretcher, and then it cuts to people pulling glass out of Jackie's back and him screaming in <laughs> agony, and you watch it and. A movie like this, you're sometimes thinking, wow, how did they accomplish that stunt? Painfully. And then then you see, oh, he literally just jumped through the glass. (laughs) But Police Story is a film that highlights something that I forgot to mention when we did the Jackie Chan episode. Is that these, like, no-name stuntmen doing such insane things. Like, that final scene, there's stunts where, like... They go, like, flying off a balcony and land on nothing. Yeah. Or there's a scene where I think he goes between two escalators or something oh, like yeah, that and yeah. lands. Or what about the scene at the in the bus at the beginning of the movie? Uh, probably one of the most famous, like, failed stunts in a Jackie Chan film. Where the bus halts and three stuntmen, like, leap out of the bus windows and fall and land on their, like, necks and backs. And they were supposed to land on the car behind Jackie. <laughs> and what ended up happening was the bus driver hit the brakes too early which caused them that when they went out they didn't have enough momentum to land on the cars <laughs> to cushion their fall so they just hit the cement right there they, like did anyone die or get a concussion or? <laughs> probably and we just don't hear about it but that scene would later on to go be recreated in the classic Tango and Cash <laughs> not as impressive as I remember uh, so Hong Kong cinema good? good and you know there's a lesson to all our listeners we will never ever run out of Jackie Chan material. We could do a Patreon episode, I think, on every Jackie Chan movie. We could. Let's do it! 